We've all seen statues in our lives, be it small enough for your home garden or big enough for Madison Square Garden. Someone was hired to make those. And today, I've got the man responsible for many of the country's greatest bronze sculptures. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Mike Major. Mike is an artist of many mediums, with decades to back up each brush stroke or chisel. He even has 14 art books published, if you can believe it. But by far, his works which impress me the most are his sculpture. Standing leagues above the average person, these giant figures give me pause whenever I see them. I've wondered for so long just how something that colossal is made, and today I got my answers. We also discuss just how hard it can be to make art a full-time career, and the things Mike has done to make it a whole lot easier for himself. Let's shape history. Welcome to the show, Mike Major. Thank you, Colton. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on. Why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for the audience? I'm an artist. Uh, I live in West Central Ohio, and I've been doing artwork all of my life. I started out with pen and ink drawings, and that uh, evolved, of course, into painting. And uh, I published 14 books of drawings and have now done over 200 bronze sculptures, including a lot of public monuments. And uh, absolutely love every aspect of the studio work. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a big jump to go from like, well, I worked with ink and pens and then up to paint. Okay, pretty reasonable, I guess. <laughs> like we're growing. You're like, and now I make sculptures, you know, that they put in public view. <laughs> well, I, I, the story behind that is that um, John Quincy Adams Ward, who was the dean of American sculpture, and in fact, he came from the small town where I live, Urbana, Ohio, he, he said that drawing is the foundation for sculpture, just like a piano is the basis for, for music. And so I think that's true. I've done literally thousands of pen and ink drawings. And what that did for me was to help me understand the three-dimensional aspect of subjects, because I draw with a scribble technique, a very relaxed technique, and the lines kind of uh, flesh out the the volume of the subject. And so I was ready to put my hands into clay and uh, begin to create uh, the clay sculptures for being cast in bronze. And uh, I have absolutely loved that. And I've just been amazed at uh, the opportunities that have come along for me to do monuments of historic figures, sports figures, and even a few abstract uh, pieces. So um, I'm I'm like a child in a sandbox. I'm having fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's always important. But, you know, I think there's a lot of misconceptions in art. And one of them for me just popped up because you're like, oh, I work with clay. And then they bronze the statue. And I'm like, oh, I kind of had this assumption that you just worked with bronze. <laughs> no, no, uh, you don't have to. It, it makes it a lot easier. We use plasticine, which is an oil-based clay. So we don't have the shrinkage issue. And so I'll do the clay sculpture. And you can really carve it out of wood. You can 
do it in plaster, the original, but, uh, but the bronze casting process is called lost wax. And re regardless of what medium an artist uses, whether it's wood or plaster or clay, after the artwork is done, then a mold is made around that artwork, putting latex on the artwork directly, letting it dry, and layering it until you have about two inches of latex. Plaster is put on the outside of that and reinforced with fiber and sometimes rebar if it's a very large monument. But there are parting stops so that that mold can be opened up. The plaster supports the latex rubber mold, clean the clay out, paint wax inside of the open mold to a half inch thickness, close the mold, seal the parting stop, and then take that wax, that hollow wax version of the sculpture out of the mold and cut it into pieces if it's a large sculpture, dip it in ceramic, which can withstand 2000 degrees of molten bronze, and burn out the wax, pour in the bronze, and then you take that shell off of the bronze casting and weld or braise the bronze pieces together and use a Dremel tool to hide all of the welds. And then a patina is added, which is simply a stain. Uh, so it comes out, you know, it's 94% copper and 6% uh, silica is what we use today. It used to be tin, but now it's silica. But then uh, the patina is like ferric nitrate, for example, if you want a, a Rembrandt brown sculpture. And um, you can use, or you can use acrylic paint or whatever you want to, to put color on the bronze. And then Incrilac, which is a clear coat, is added. And wax is added on top of that so that it's a multi-step process. But the foundry does a lot of the work. I do the fun part. The foundry does the hard work. So, yeah. well, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of a lot of steps in there, which makes me think: like, is there a high error rate, or are people pretty like once you know this, like every step just goes together super smooth? Good question. It's it's fairly um, uh, flexible. I mean, if you make a mistake, or if you have a, a collapse, let's say in the wax when you take it out. Um, you can change the wax shape. You can also, bronze happens to be malleable, so you can actually hammer it and move it around a little bit. Uh, so it's, it's not going to break very easily. Uh, in terms of mistakes, the reason I use a foundry instead of doing it myself is that each step is something you have to be well practiced at to be good at it. Each set of people who, well, the mold makers do molds every day. Uh, the people who uh, do the casting pour, you know, pour metal once a week or twice a week and the chasing, the same thing, you know, when you're using your Dremel tool. So each step requires practice to be good at it. And um, as, as the artist, of course, I look over the shoulder of the foundry experts and if there's something wrong, I'll help, help them see it and we'll get it fixed. So it's a fun process. And we have the nice thing about it is that we have bronzes that are many thousands of years old and are still in great shape. So it's humbling to think that, gee, these pieces could be around for a long time. Um, of course, recently we in the news, we've uh, seen that monuments are being taken down. They're controversial. I haven't had too much of that. I have two large Lincoln sculptures 
one at the Veterans Administration, and uh, or it's about to be unveiled, in fact, in April, and uh, one in downtown Dayton, Ohio. And there's been minor attempts to protest, but not damage the monument. But in terms of toppling them, and none of them have been uh, hurt in that respect. So, but a lot of other monuments in the South, especially the Confederate monuments, uh, have become an issue. Certainly. I mean, that's one of those, like, it's a big target, right? Like a giant shiny statue in the middle of a very public area seems like an easy place to go, even if you're like, this is not necessarily a controversial figure. We're just going to go to get some attention. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good point. That's a good point. Maybe that's part of the reason that uh, if people want attention, that would uh, certainly be a very public way to get it. Well, and it's very interesting. You know, you're talking about like all these people that have a lot of experience in each step in, you know, making up the statue that have like their own kind of medium that they develop. And, you know, like you said, leaning on other people to do each part kind of gives you more time to become really good at your specific part of that, that process. I think so. I think so. And the, the real story, uh, Colton, is that uh, I also still do a lot of oil painting. I still do a lot of pen and ink drawing. And um, even when we're on vacation, I'll be drawing every day at, because I absolutely love to. Uh, but, but it also keeps, keeps my mind sharp in terms of form. And so I'm ready to, to dig in and do the next commission. Of course. <laughs> Have you ever, I mean, you have obviously like, these are my, my mediums, right? Like you called your book ink, paint, and bronze. So it's Mm -hmm. like, these are my mediums. Are there any of those out there that you've like tried to get into? And you're like, this is not for me. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I, I actually have a master's degree in printmaking from Pratt Institute and uh, it's just a lot of work. (laughs) So, I mean, I'd rather just do a pen and ink drawing, but I mean, I love the depth of the blacks that you get in a etching plate or lithography plate. And I know how to do that. I know the chemistry, but I'd like the immediacy of having a clean white sheet of paper and beginning just putting a line down and then that breaks the ice and I'm ready to move forward, whether it's from the imagination or whether I'm drawing something that I'm looking at. And there are other technical aspects in the arts. You can really get into some difficult mediums. I have experimented in fiberglass. And um, uh, in fact, some of the copies that are standing behind me are, uh, are fiberglass pulled out of the bronze molds. After we've done the bronze monuments, we've created some fiberglass replicas just to have here in the studio. And... Uh, but I, I have a gentleman who was 90 years old who was helping me with that, who was very good at fiberglass, and I just let him do it. You know, it, uh, the mold was made, the artwork was done, and, and he just had um, a ball creating copies of these sculptures and doing a very good job. Yeah. Well, and you've <laughs> obviously you know, been doing this for quite a while, so you've met a lot of people working in different mediums. Do you think your chosen medium says something about you? Where you're like, oh, I've met a lot of other people that work with clay, and we are all this kind of person. (laughs) There is so much wonderful variety out there uh, among artists um, in terms of uh, their backgrounds, how much they actually do artwork. It's been, it's a difficult profession, as you know, 
uh, to make a living full time. And if you're not doing a lot, if you're not producing a lot, it's just hard to build confidence and get to the point where you're quite successful. There are some very talented artists who struggle with the business end of art or struggle with uh, knowing how to price, for example, their work or how to present their work or are unwilling to show their work because it's so personal to them. And and they're afraid if they get a, a bad review, it's going to break their hearts. And I've seen that stop artists uh, absolutely completely give up their artwork because of a fragile nature uh, of their feelings and how close they are emotionally to their work. I, um, I've been asked often, what's my favorite piece of artwork? And I say, the next one that I'm getting ready to do, <laughs> I don't look back too much. Uh, I'm, I, I'm in the moment. I really like the immediacy of doing a new project. Well, and it certainly seems like there are a lot mm -hmm. of pieces in there where you need everything to fall into place, right? Like you need the ability, the time just to work on your craft. You also need to be able to fund it. So like you have to have the space, the materials, everything else. You also have to work in the business sense to be able to price it, to sell it. Like there's a lot of pieces that have to come together for this to be truly successful. That's true. And the nature for, I think for most artists is that we have very good months, very good years. And then we have very low times, like during COVID when almost nothing was happening. What I did early on, many years ago, early in my career, was to start investing in real estate so that there was a, there was another income stream, which really took a lot of the stress and pressure out of uh, just depending on paintings and drawings and sculptures selling. And uh, so I, that's one thing I write about in the book is I recommend uh, to people who would work independently that they create multiple income streams. And that real estate is really a good one because that rental income check comes in every month. And uh, that's a very comforting thing. But uh, um, I've recently not only invested in uh, rentals, but uh, uh, we're building our second hotel that in a couple of, well, we've been building hotels in small communities that really need them. And, um, and that's, that's been kind of a, a two edged sword in a positive way that, uh, we have communities, we have a couple of communities we're associated with where we have homes, Urbana, Ohio, and then Indian Lake that didn't have decent hotels. And it really was a piece of the puzzle for these communities. They, they were missing that piece. And now that they have them, it's making a big difference. We've, uh, we've realized that more jobs are coming into uh, Urbana, for example because we're winning some, some competitions for companies uh, who are opening up here and creating new jobs. So anyway, um, I think it's important to diversify. That's the point I'm trying to make. And uh, not just do artwork all of the time, because you really do need that variety. You need to be involved in the community. Uh, you need that social interaction with others. And it's a great way to learn and expand and enjoy life. And you just have to w restrain yourself a little where you're like, hey, you know what would look really good in front of this hotel? A big sculpture. <laughs> you know, it's, I'll have to admit, it's, I've never made a sculpture for myself uh, because they're so darn expensive. I mean, you're talking, some of them are hundreds of thousands of dollars. But uh, 
maybe someday I'll I'll be able to put one in front of the hotel. I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> there'll have to be a good reason. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean that's that's very interesting because there is such a wide range when you talk about the price of art where you're like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, if you're looking at something very small out of very simple materials, okay, I've bought original art for $45, you know, on a mm -hmm. boardwalk. That goes all the way up into like, yes, we're creating hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of sculpture for a single piece. Like that is a enormous range. Oh, yeah. I tell you, when I was starting out as an artist, just doing drawings of houses and pets, just to have an income, I never dreamed that I would be doing, um, you know, artwork that was in six figures. And uh, but it came eventually. Uh, it came with a lot of hard work and a, a lot of practice and a lot of willingness to meet people and um, and create connections so that that trust level was built. But uh, the hard thing about breaking into the sculpture realm, which I consider the peak or the epitome of, of fine arts in the visual arts area, it's hard to break into it because you've got to have that first successful piece. And uh, if you have not done a bronze monument, then how are you going to get hired to do a bronze monument? <laughs> in my case, I sat on a committee uh, trying to build commerce uh, through the uh, historic corridor. Uh, Route 68 runs north and south here in Ohio, and it used to be a buffalo trail. And the buffalo trail became Route 68, and the towns all the way to Cincinnati, the little towns along the way, uh, had quite a history. So this committee was trying to develop a, a tourism effort uh, so that the communities would thrive. And out of that, uh, we decided, uh, my committee decided that we needed to complete a project that was started in the mid-1800s by this John Quincy Adams Ward, the Dean of American Sculpture. Um, even though he worked and lived in New York, um, he came back to Ohio from time to time, and he had done a sculpture of the Daniel Boone of the Northwest Territory, which is Simon Kenton. Simon Kenton was a pioneer in this um, Northwest Territory that became Ohio, Indiana, Illinois. And um, uh, he was he helped settlers come in and he protected them. He helped lay out uh, this town of Urbana. And so when, uh, when uh, John Quincy Adams Ward did a 20-inch tall sculpture of Simon Kenton, he never completed it, even though he had been commissioned by the state of Ohio to com complete a, a full-size, a life-size version for the state house. Uh, we entered the Civil War, and uh, the state did not have the funds to continue with that commission. So he passed away in the early 1900s. The model was in the local library, and the committee decided this needed to be enlarged for the grave of Simon Kenton uh, that's here in town. And um, I was asked to find a sculptor to do it. So I, I reached out in three states and asked for resumes and portfolios. And what I got, I wasn't satisfied with the proportions, the, uh, the size, or the proportion of the limbs to the body, the figure. I, I just wasn't happy that we had anyone uh, who applied that could really do a good job. I asked permission to do the sculpture, not knowing a whole lot about, about it at that point. But I figured I could ask questions and find out. 
I do a lot of that in my life. I'll say, yes, I can do that. And then I figure out how to do it. <laughs> and it turned out to be a very successful piece. It's the one that's highest in back of me. That's the Simon Kenton monument. And he's holding a, a rifle and he's in pioneer costume and has a dog uh, at his feet. And that is sitting now on the grave of Simon Kenton. And that opened a big door for me because I was so excited after that was done. I thought, I love sculpture. So I did a bust on my own of a coach for the Ohio State football team called Woody Hayes. And uh, that got national attention because a friend of mine knew Mrs. Hayes. Uh, coach Hayes had passed away. And she commissioned two castings of that bust to give to the university and that made in that made it into newspapers like usa today and whatever and then i got a call to do a jackie robinson bust and a vince lombardi bust and that led to a mayo clinic sculpture uh, a, a monument of the founder of the mayo clinic so one thing just led to the other but but that first sculpture had to be done or none of none of those other things would have happened and uh I have just had a ball since that uh, first sculpture was created. When do you find that's true of most artwork? It's like you have to build some momentum and then immediately capitalize as much as you can on it to just keep it going. I think that's part of it. And, and I think for if we're speaking to any artist out there, you charge a small amount for your work as you're beginning. And as you get better and you build your name, you incrementally increase that price. So your work becomes more and more valuable. And it's, it's almost an intuitive thing. You just have to use your own judgment about, you know, what is going to sustain you. That my goal was to be full time, not to have, uh, have to have a second job in a factory or to teach. I did teach college for a couple of years, just part time, but I intentionally walked away from that when I was offered full time because I felt that if I did not try to be a sculptor or an artist full time, I'd look back at the end of my life and say, gee, I wish I'd tried that. <laughs> but it's worked out so well. And uh, that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to encourage others who often, for lack of confidence or for lack of understanding of the finances or for other reasons, they don't become the artists they could be or the independent worker in some other field that they could be. So I wanted to tell some stories about hardship and success. Some of the stories are funny and, and some of them are not so funny, but uh, they're stories that people can relate to and uh, hopefully will take a lesson from some of them. One of them, one of the most interesting ones I think that everyone could apply is to um, look into the future without fear of failure. So the exercise is to write the details of what a day would be like five years from now if failure was not a factor. So anything you would try would succeed. And if you can enter that state of mind and write in detail what that day would be like, it's amazing how your mind clears a lot of the fog out of the way in terms of finding that path to that very happy day in the future. Um, fear is often one of the biggest uh, blocks to people striking out on their own, doing independent work. So that exercise, if 
truly taken seriously and repeated every couple of months, it can really refresh one's outlook and ability to quickly realize what they thought they could never do. Uh, that's just one of one of the things that I've learned to divorce failure, to get failure out of the picture, because risk-taking is key in the arts. There's no creativity without risk. And um, I'm a believer in creativity. I think um, we need more creativity in our leadership in the country. I think we need more creativity in our home lives. It's, it's with creativity, there's less bias. There's... Uh, uh, there's a greater sense of understanding. There's a greater sense of possibility. And uh, so I'm a, I'm a real advocate for developing our creativity and celebrating our creativity. Well, and you said something very interesting because, you know, it is very hard to get through the fear, right? Like there's a lot of fear in everything we do. And I think as, as a species, we're very anxious all the time, even if we don't think so. But, you know, what is... What is the inherent risk in just embracing creativity? Like at its core level, creativity is free, right? Like it just happens in between your ears and you take it wherever from there. But, you know, is there any risk in just embracing it? Well, there is. I think there is a, a trepidation in that uh, when you put opposite ideas together, unlikely ideas and 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 you present that, or you you push an idea forward that has never been tried before. The uniqueness, the change that that represents, can be unsettling not only for yourself but for others that you're presenting it to. And that is that is the territory of creativity, which is trying something new and risk taking. And I I think that um, I think that just having the courage to take creative risks in every aspect of our lives is something that takes time. For example, how do you deal with failure? A lot of people fail at something and think that it's just that. In fact, every time I failed at something, there's been a gift somewhere there. There's been some nugget of other possibility if I just look for it and don't think of it as a dead end, but think of it as an opportunity. Um, there's always been something very interesting and positive that comes out of risk. Sometimes it's just a change of direction. Sometimes it's tweaking an idea. But I've gotten to the point where I get kind of excited when there's a failure because I think, okay, there's a gift here somewhere. Let's find it. <laughs> and that's certainly a very good way to look at it because I think the most common failure is the failure to start right? Like people just won't start something because they're so afraid that later down the road, it will become a failure that they're like, well, if I just don't start, I haven't really failed. And I would argue a, that's the opposite thing. Like you've already failed. Good point. That's an excellent point. A blank canvas or a blank sheet of paper is intimidating. But once you put that first line down, you've broken the ice. It's just getting started. Or for a writer to write that first sentence or even the first word, once the ice is broken, then the fear begins to diminish and, and the focus turns toward the idea, which pushes the fear and the, you know, uh, the reticence out of the way. So you make a very good point that uh, uh, just starting uh, or never starting can be a real, a real issue in, uh, in these fields of creativity. Well, and it's, it's a weird point, right? Like, 
to think, is creativity missing these days? Because we have more outlets and opportunities than in any period of history. Yeah, just having opportunities, uh, more opportunities than any time in history, uh, is is something apart from creativity. It, it's it can be factored in, but um, creative creativity is really within the individual and within uh, our culture. You know how how do we think of new ideas? How do we how willing are we to to try? something new uh take a a fine idea and make it better um we settle for what's available all too often we go to amazon make the order and there it is and our life is better um could we have made a gadget that would be better than that or be less expensive and and uh, enjoy doing that yes there are other ways to get what we want i would say that um Exercising the mind, uh, inventing, problem solving is something that is kind of scabbed over when we have so many things that are available. We don't have to solve problems for day-to-day comfort and happiness as much as we used to. That's certainly true. And it's it's one of those, you know, with all the the forms of entertainment and, you know, media that exist, I'm like, why not? I'm always pushing people. I'm like, just embrace whatever you're passionate about. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's Barbies, like, I love Barbies. Great. Go out there, make a YouTube channel about it. It's not high risk. There is no major investment. You already have the interest and the passion to make it happen. Like, just go do that. And maybe doing it leads to something further. But, you know, it, it seems like people are scared to put their their passion out like that. They don't want to show people like, oh, look what I care about. It's a it's a it's scary, isn't it, to stand out? Uh, I mean, if you're doing something different, like collecting Barbies, uh, you know, and it because you're the only one doing it, uh, maybe uh, you know, on large scale, uh, might have a real opportunity, uh, might really uh, entertain and delight people to see your collection. I agree with you. I think that. Um, I think the most the most uh, important thing for us is to be able to identify our passions, uh, and we don't spend enough time finding out what they really are. So many people spend their lives working on something that they don't really like because they haven't been able to discover their passion, even though the potential is always there to find something that's exciting and meaningful and and gives them purpose in their lives. But um, a lot of a lot of the uh, process, I think, has to do with experience, um, with travel, with meeting people, with trying different things, tasting different foods. Uh, in other words, having fun uh, can lead to your passion. And maybe we're too serious and work oriented to find our passion sometimes. But uh, it's hard for kids coming out of high school to have any idea what they want to major in in college or, or to do professionally if they want to skip college because they haven't really been exposed to uh, the things that they might fall in love with. And uh, I was lucky to uh, fall in love with doing artwork at age five. I think part of it was my parents sat with me and encouraged me and said, gee, that's good. My father later told me when I had made the decision to be an artist years later. 
and I was successful in his lifetime. But years later, he said, I really thought your feet would be under my table for the rest of my life. Uh, he wasn't sure I would be able to feed myself <laughs> when I started, but he, he still encouraged me to do what I love to do. And I owe that, uh, that debt of gratitude to my parents. Sure. And, uh, yeah. So we all, we all depend on that, that encouragement, I think, from the people around us. And that's part of how, that's part of the solution for creativity is to, um, to really be part of the community that lifts up people who are creative and celebrate that as you have when you buy artwork. Uh, and it doesn't have to be expensive artwork. It means so much. Someone came into the studio last night and bought a piece of artwork that maybe took me 20 minutes. It wasn't a significant piece of work, pen and ink on paper. And uh, it just made me feel great. It was it was great encouragement. And I, I thought to myself, I'd like to do more of that. You know, I want to get back to pen and ink and do some more of that uh, this winter. So it's it's that kind of encouragement that helps nurture creativity. And y yes, I believe we need to emphasize creativity. Our schools tend to only teach what can be measured. I think that's one thing that I've been lobbying for as as Ohio's first artist in residence years ago when the Ohio Arts Council and National Endowment for the Arts hired me to be Ohio's first artist in residence, I, I wanted the more kids to have art teachers and, and to be able to, um, to do things that can't necessarily be measured, quantified, and graded. But we seem to, at that point, have been in a trajectory toward only being able to do teach the things that can be quantified and creativity can't necessarily be quantified so it's something that we need to get better at certainly i mean there's no aptitude test that just says like oh look you're supposed to be a sculptor <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> there isn't you're right i hadn't thought of that that's right this goes back to that kind of statement where you're like you know i i knew if i didn't try i'd regret it I'd, I'd look back and I just think like, why didn't I spend more time doing this? And I'm now fully aware that there is going to be a clip that exists for eternity of me saying, I collect Barbies because that was the example <laughs> in my head. Um, but it's one of those that like, even that person, maybe you think it's strange, it's unusual, no one's going to care about it. And then you put it online and you find there's a huge community of people that love it and just also don't feel like putting themselves out there. So being the first person that put yourself online to talk about the little details, you suddenly have this massive audience that's like, oh, hey, I always wanted somebody to do this and just couldn't find one. Well, tell me if you've experienced this, Colton. I only looking back realize this factor in doing and following my passion. Uh, early on, uh, after undergraduate school at Ohio University, I stayed on partly because my girlfriend was an undergraduate yet and I didn't want to lose her. But uh, I did artwork in the community and I was getting commissions from professors and other friends I'd made in the community. They didn't need that artwork, but they realized that I was following my passion doing something that I love to do. And they wanted to be part of that. They wanted me to succeed. So if you're following your passion, uh, whatever it is, even collecting Barbie dolls, people 
will see it as a true passion. If you're sincere, you're going to get help. It, it's just an updraft that happens. It's, a, it's just human nature. It's irresistible to support someone who's following their passion if it's a creative passion. Well, certainly. I mean, you talk to people and you can see, you know, their eyes light up and they go from being, you know, very mild to being like very energetic. And when you see them talk about things like that, if you have your own, you want to talk about it with them because then you can share two different kinds of passions with, you know, somebody out there. And if you don't have your own, you want to see more of theirs. Like those are the people I'm generally encouraged to keep talking to because I'm like, oh, I know they have passion and I want to keep hearing about it. And I want to know what they're doing with it. I want to see where it's going. <laughs> There's a magnetism, isn't there, to people that, that are like that, that have a, a passionate interest in something. We're drawn to them just very naturally. People are drawn to my work and to me because I'm kind of unusual doing artwork in a rural community, a farming community. And uh, I love that. I love that, and especially children. I had some 14-year-old children in here of uh, last week interviewing me for their art class, and they, they were just so charming and so, you know, they're just sponges wanting to absorb uh, whatever they could about this unusual activity taking place in this studio, which to me is very ordinary, but to them it's so exciting. I think it opened a door for them, a possibility that, gee, maybe, maybe I could do that. And uh, boy, wouldn't it be fun to be able to spend your life doing artwork? So I hope, I hope they were inspired. We'll see. <laughs> right. Well, it is. It really does draw you in. Because even if you don't care about it, like that is, now that I've brought it up and I'm going to get uh, some flack for it because I was talking about a specific listener who at one point shared their their thing with me. They're like, I don't want to do anything on the show, but I love these things that are not Barbies, but they are in that same doll realm. And so I know I'm going to get an email from her. But I'm like, I have no interest in any form of dolls unless you're really excited about it. And so like I sat and talked to that listener for a great deal of time about just like why they were excited about this thing and why they liked it. And that's, you know, it just draws people in and it's funny to see people be that excited about something and still, you know, have that, that worry and that anxiety that other people won't find it interesting or exciting. It's like, you're doing it for it, you. Just do it for you. Other people oh, will yes. come. They will come. They will come. I had an interesting learning experience related to that when I traveled to Cuba in 2014 through the State Department to meet with artists and the director of the National Museum uh, and go into homes of artists and go to schools uh, where students were working with stuff that came out of the trash, like broken watches and making interesting jewelry out of, of that. And uh, But what I found that it really inspired some of my work were the artists who were painting colorful, ce celebratory, I mean, just really fun paintings. And the way they wanted to talk about them and relate, tell stories, they went on and on and on. And we were trained in school here in the States that art needs to speak for itself. And you're not supposed to have to explain it. And I thought, wow, this really turns me around. I'm going to go home and paint, you know, very fun paintings and colorful painting, which I did. It's changed. It changed some of the work that I've done. And uh, uh, I'm having a ball with it and more willing to talk about it than I used to be. But it's just that enthusiasm, that same vein of enthusiasm that you're talking about that uh, 
is so contagious and so healthy. It's, I had a professor in graduate school that said, you know, it's kind of like yogurt. Yogurt, there's a culture that uh, it's a bacteria that, that uh, spreads. And he said, in, in the arts, we borrow our ideas from each other. We're, we inspire each other. Um, no matter what we're doing creatively, we're, uh, especially in the arts, though. And, uh, and then we take an idea from another artist and improve it. And so that it's kind of like that culture that comes out of yogurt. You know, you just expand and spread the word and, uh, and it's contagious. Yeah. And it gets you to look at things like, wow, this is way outside of my comfort zone. You know, mm -hmm. what I am, I've classically done paintings of whatever type, but they're very, you know, mm -hmm. muted tones or very earthy. And then you see it done in vibrant color and you're like, oh, I guess it can be accomplished. Maybe I should push myself to try it just to see. Exactly. exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. When someone tries, I think Jim Dine inspired me to do heart paintings. For, so I did a whole series of heart paintings, but tried to do it better than what Jim Dine had done. I just uh, thought, okay, I can I can even be more colorful. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's a it's it's a connectivity. We're not I'm not out there as a as an artist who invents things out of open space. I I'm inspired by what I look at and uh, and I think uh, subconsciously absorb. Uh, landscapes and figures and shapes and and either work in realism or work in abstraction but it's it's from the input that i've had the experience that i've had it's not something coming out of thin air it's just something that that has grown inside of me and sometimes lay dormant for years but it comes to the surface eventually same when i do writing you know i use a journal to, uh, because I've got all these days that are completely free. So the first thing I do in the morning uh, when I'm being good is uh, sit down and write in my journal. And what comes out first is junk. Like, oh, I got to take the trash out today or, you know, I need to do this and things I have to do, change the oil in the car. And uh, but if I write long enough, if I continue, the cream comes to the surface. You know, what would really be significant for time spent today would be to do this piece of artwork that I've been planning. So that tends to cause me to push the busyness out of the way and get to the really meaningful things. It helps make my days more valuable beginning them that way rather than just heading out and, and uh, uh, accidentally uh, filling the, the hours of the day doing things that aren't thought thought out or planned very well. Yeah, it kind of sounds kind of sounds like you're like I start my day by getting all the small talk out of the way. <laughs> like <laughs> I did all the small talk with myself and now I know like all right, that's done. Moving on. What's important? What do we have on our mind that actually matters? <laughs> well, we have to have the small talk because it's there, you know, you got to spill it out. And then you feel some somehow satisfied that okay, that wasn't so difficult and it wasn't so important sometimes. Well, and I think those are fun conversations. You know, you have them with other people where you're like, if we just sit here in each other's company and we embrace that silence for a minute, like once all the small talk's done, something interesting has to come out because otherwise we're just going to keep sitting here in the quiet and it gets uncomfortable. You're like, well, you know, it would be less uncomfortable if I just start sharing deep personal truths. <laughs> 
that has that happened during interviews i suppose maybe it has with you oh, yeah and i do it in, in person too like i am uh -huh. very comfortable in the silence at this point i've done this for enough years that like silence is fine with me and now i just do it in person where i will just let that silence drag longer than it should and eventually the other people are like oh i guess i should still be talking like well i have no more <laughs> small talk left let me just you know kind of spill my guts to you <laughs> And it's it's yeah. great. I welcome people to embrace the silence. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with silence unless you're in radio or, you know, in broadcast. I guess people don't really like uh, long gaps of silence. But uh, I really celebrate silence in the studio uh, quite often because it is it is the venue for deep concentration. And there was a writer, a Czechoslovakian writer, researcher who wrote about flow. And Mikhail, I can't even pronounce his name, but uh, he he worked. He talked about and wrote about and researched flow, which is reaching a state of joy in what you're doing creatively. That is so exciting and so absorbing that you lose track of time passing. And he said it takes about ten years to reach that stage in the arts and i agree with him i think it took me about 10 years to get to the point where uh, i lose track of time you know i'll be painting or doing sculpture and the day is gone and i think well where did it go and and i was just so absorbed in the work and i think anyone who has passion about what they do are likely to reach that flow as long as they're putting effort forward and concentrating and trying to get better at what they're doing Certainly in the arts, it's very achievable. It's very, very much a goal to reach that setting where I'm either here or at our other home uh, at Indian Lake where I just sit down and put a line down and then make something out of it, invent something. And uh, before long, I, I'm perhaps listening to a recorded book and just doing the artwork and my hand seems to take over by itself. It doesn't seem to require much direction from me, yeah. but uh, it's a wonderful state. And um, again, I think that can happen for anyone who is working within the confines of their passion, just reach that state of flow. Yeah, I just heard an author was talking about this the other day, and they had said, you know, flow happens in a very narrow space in your brain, hmm. where they're like, hmm. it, the thing you're working on cannot be so simple that it's boring because your brain will just tune out but it also cannot be so impossible that you couldn't attain it they're like so that narrow window between like i might not be able to do this and i am certain i could do this on any given day of the week they're like that's where it happens hmm. so i that sounds accurate that sounds accurate that it is a it is a i don't know whether it's a zone in the brain but it's a it's a, a realm of concentration, a level of concentration where you're in a state of peace uh, without interruption and you're focused intensely. And uh, it is just a joyful experience. I hope many people reach that. And I, I think lots of artists can, although a lot of them just worry too much. They, uh, they fret and are afraid of what's going to happen next. But we've got to try to reach a comfort level uh, spiritually and financially 
so that we can experience that more and more. And it makes me think about, you know, a lot of the things we've talked about, you know, the anxiety, the worry, the, you know, need to develop certain skills. A lot of this becomes a lot easier if we start promoting it very early in life. You know, being very supportive, like you said, you found yours at five and your father's <laughs> like, I'm concerned, but I'm going to encourage this. Like if we just did that, you know, for all creative endeavors, when people are children, like they kind of carry it with them into adulthood. Yes. Yes, I think so. Uh, I grew up on a farm and um, the I think one thing that really nurtured my artwork was the fact that the summers were so lonely. Uh, we were so isolated that uh, after I had done my chores, uh, pulling weeds out of the bean field and, uh, you know, carrying water to the horses and this, that, and the other, I drew. And I, I just uh, lost myself in designing cars and, and doing renderings of storms and things that, um, that were visually interesting to me. And uh, so it's, you know, it, it's just, I think, Age 10 is a critical age for, for young people because socially it can be embarrassing for some in some situations and some cultures and some schools uh, where the popular thing is not to be drawing. It's to be in sports. It's to be a cheerleader. It's to be something other than an artist. And um, one has to have a certain strength, a strong core and a deep passion to make it through that challenging time when socially it may not be the most popular thing to do. I've seen it over and over again. Young, very talented people just put aside their drawing tools and um, go on and do something that's more popular, more socially acceptable. But again, that's all part of, as, as you said a few minutes ago, uh, you know, having the, having the support of, of people around you especially parents, uh, is critical, but certainly school personnel as well. And having educational systems and, and um, uh, criteria and subjects that are celebrating creativity and those things that are beyond measure. Uh, we have gifted programs which try to push people and, and, and you know challenge them. But a lot of what I see is not necessarily fostering or nurturing creativity. There's some creative writing efforts that are looking really good that I've seen in, in some of the schools in Columbus, Ohio, especially in Upper Arlington, but we can do a lot more. I have, I, we had an exchange student years ago from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia, and Emily, who we've kept in touch with, and we visited her in Australia not too long ago. Uh, she told me about something that stuck with me that she said one day uh, a certain bird landed on the windowsill and their, their schools were open air in Melbourne, Australia. And she said, we just took the next few days to study birds, especially that one. I'm thinking we could never do that in our schools because we've got to, we've got to get ready for the test. <laughs> and yet that was so inspiring. And she is so well-educated and so successful. And it's that's the kind of thing that nurtures creativity when we, on the spur of the moment, are inspired and we don't take that for granted. We don't ignore it. We don't brush it aside. We follow it. Well, it's interesting. Let me pose this question to you and I'll give an example to give you some time to think about it. 
But if you were able to design a class, like this just is a class, kids are going to take it, what do you make of it to try and help boost their creativity? Because my first thought is, all right, let's make a class that just shows correlations. Like, you need this skill and you should have fun with it because X thing. Like, well, I should encourage you to draw because it also helps you with architecture and with engineering and with these other things. Like, I can show you the reason that creativity is going to help you in your career fields. That would be my thought. And and you might be very successful at that. My, my direction would be uh, to create exciting discovery. There's a, uh, for example, uh, we can take oil paint and paint on a piece of plexiglass or a metal plate and put it in an etching press, lay a piece of paper on top and transfer what we had painted on the plexiglass or metal to the paper. And it comes out brighter and wonderful. Uh, and, it, you know, little experiments like that can trigger uh, surprise and enthusiasm and begin to instill confidence, which are all key to becoming more creative. So many different, you know, we're all different. Um, I'm a very visual learner, and some people are a different kind of learner, and, and your approach that you just described will work with some people. I, I would teach, and I have taught in a different way when I had the opportunity. But um, to, to help someone find their own and discover their own it's kind of like the Montessori method where you, you know, you are set up with um, different options of activities and that's your work, so to speak, but it's actually play and you discover things and you get enthusiastic about things that are more fun to do. So you follow that line of enthusiasm and you learn. And I think that is a wonderful way to, uh, to excite people about how, you know, about lead them toward finding their passion. Certainly. Well, this has been an absolute blast. I'm having fun with you. I wanted to make sure I gave you a moment here to kind of tell people where to find you and your work and your books and everything else if they're looking for more from you. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Uh, the book that was just published is called Ink, Paint, and Bronze, A Path to Creative Freedom. It's available on Amazon in paperback, hardback, and soon it'll be one of the first books ever published, if not the first audiobook, uh, you know, about artwork. Uh, the, the book, you know, not only shares those nine uplifting values that will nurture people, help people build courage to do what they have a passion to do, especially in the arts, but it also shows the second half of the book, shows a lot of these monuments and sculptures that I've done. I want people to know that I've been successful and that I'm speaking from a platform of success. I've been financially successful. I've been artistically successful. And I, I build that confidence for a point. And that is so that what I say in that first part of the book about the uplifting values, that it's true and I've lived those things. They're absolutely true. And it's very possible for others to use those lessons. I'm available online at Mike Major fine art and at Mike major sculpture photos uh, that would lead you into that. And of course on Facebook, it's just Mike major and, or Michael major. And uh, there are a lot of Michael majors, but uh, the one that does the artwork <laughs> is there. 
Yeah. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, Colton. You're very, very fun to talk with. I thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you. And absolutely, thank you for your time. I've appreciated this immensely having you on here. And like you said, you know, giving a successful person's very good weighted opinion to other people who may be struggling out there. I think it's very important and I appreciate you doing it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. I hope everyone's new year is going well, despite all the things I'm seeing in the news. The top country rankings continue marching onward. Number one, the United States, led by Oregon, New York, and Illinois. Number two, the United Kingdom, led by England. Number three, Australia, with New South Wales barely in the lead. Number four, New Zealand. And I have no further data on where in New Zealand, but if a listener emails me, I'll include their hometown or wherever as the place in the lead. And number five, Canada, with Ontario out front. That's it for this week. Have a great week, a great weekend, and I'll see you all back here for another new episode. Until that next episode, please do all those things that help the show grow, like rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing. It really takes just a couple of seconds, and it helps me out a whole lot. You can also reach out to dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the social media pages if you want to reach me personally. But most importantly, stay dumb.